0: Good morning and welcome to Backstory with me, Noreen Meir. We sure have a special guest on today's show. He's a familiar voice on RTHK Radio 3 and we've heard him talk about local and foreign politics, business-related issues and war. He is Brigadier Christopher Hammerbeck and in the next half an hour or so, you can hear his backstory. First, let's start with his childhood.
1: My father was in the Royal Air Force and he met my mother Uh, who was an army nursing sister, and she had just been sent to India from the UK after she'd come out from France through Dunkirk. And they met at the uh, very typically Hong Kong type of meeting at the races in Royal Pindi, And I was born in Bangalore in 1943. Uh, And then I grew up really... I had a very happy childhood. Uh, My mother particularly... Has had a tremendous influence on my life, and uh, she, you know I'm really sorry when she died because she's such a great pal, uh, and I'm very lucky to have had such a happy childhood. I have one sister, Jackie, who is in America, and uh, she and I are very close. Um, we've always been close for 20 months between the two of us as kids. We were. She was always under command. <laughs> <laughs> And I think my first uh, recollection was after my father left. My father had been in the uh, in the Royal Air Force in 1935, and in 1945, having survived the war, when many air crew didn't, uh, he decided to leave and went into business with my, his father. And we were living then just outside Cambridge in a place called Horse Heath, which was my first school. And I remember painting my uh, my sister red with red paint, which my parents <laughs> foolish. shit. <laughs> <laughs> But, oh. uh, you know, happy childhood, really, uh, and then until I went away to uh, boarding school, f- my father rejoined the Air Force, uh, and we were posted to Germany in the early 1950s, and um, I, 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 when we got back from Germany, I was then, was then sent off to boarding school. Did
0: that have an influence in in you
1: wanting to join the military? Not really. I uh, I, I suppose um, I I wanted to join the Fleet Air Arm, but as you see, I have glasses, and in (laughs) those days uh, you can't you couldn't fly if you glasses. Is it true
0: you really needed twenty twenty vision?
1: Yeah, in those days, definitely not now uh, because uh, things have moved on a bit. But in fact, I was pretty lucky that I didn't join the Fleet Air Arm. An awful lot of people who did they were very underpowered airplanes, went straight over the end and drowned. Um, anyhow, to cut a long story short, um, my, at school it wasn't heavy on the intellect. It was much heavier on rugby, cricket, and <laughs> athletics, and so I was good at all of those. And uh, I was playing London rugby, and really didn't know. I was about seven, eighteen at the time, didn't know what I wanted. Seventeen at the time, didn't know what I wanted to do. And I was a, I was a stand-off. Um, Uh, And the inside centre said to me, what are you going to do with your life? And I said, well, my mother is very keen that I should take a join a profession. And before I knew it, I was then articled to the senior partner in the largest firm solicitors in London and stuck that out for four years. I had six months to go before qualification and I knew that this was not the life for me. And I saw an advertisement in the Daily Telegraph saying... Um, three years of adventure, and at the end of it, three thousand five hundred pounds. Well, in those days, this is, uh, is nineteen sixty. Three thousand five hundred pounds was a real lot of money. And, at any rate, I applied and joined and took, uh, had a short service commission in the uh, in the army. When you were twenty, were you still in the law firm? Uh, no, I I, I I had left, and I was living at home out in Essex, where my father was stationed. Uh, he was still in the Air Force at that stage. And I decided that what I wanted to do um, was to earn some money. And the only job I could get was a job in a shuttlecock uh, manufactory in Saffron Walden. And I was uh, working at night because that was the best pay. Uh, and when I got there, I discovered that I was the only man amongst 300 women. <laughs> and as a young, very innocent Catholic boy, I grew up very quickly, let me tell you. <laughs> Uh, but that was it, really.
0: Well, uh, so, and then and then, what happened? How long did you stay in that company Well, I for? did it
1: for about six months and um, I was promoted very quickly uh, because one night um, I was making the championship uh, shuttlecocks, which are the, you know, the, and this, this, this firm still to this day makes all the championship shuttlecocks. And every single one of 20 gross at night, so that's 200 odd, had a floor in it. And I received immediate promotion to product <laughs> quality insurance because the uh, because the owner of the company said, "Well, said, Christopher, the one thing you will know is what a floor is <laughs>
0: <laughs> Did you know any of the differences before no, you joined the military I didn't know anything yeah.
1: about it at all uh, i didn 't have a driving license at that <laughs> stage um, and uh, you know i got, when I went down to Bovington for my troop leaders course, it was the most magical time, learning to drive a tank, learning to fire uh, the, the gun on a tank, and learning to operate all the radios. Uh, and that was the start of 30 very happy years in the army, actually. Um, uh, you know, I really, really enjoyed it. And, it, it, you know, it's it'd been the most extraordinary adventure, for, really, for me. Um, I was a short service commission officer. Um, my, my hero uh, was my second commanding officer, a chap called uh, Colonel Doug Ambage, who had been a troop leader from the invasion uh, in Normandy and fought all his way through up until the Baltic, up to the Baltic. And, um... He called me into his office and I was actually terrified. You know, a young second lieutenant who wouldn't say boo to a goose uh, summoned to the warning officer's uh, office and he was there and he said, uh, Mr. Hambig, he said, sign this document. And so, being good, obedient to I signed the document. I said, Colonel, what have I signed for? He said, Congratulations, you've got a regular commission. We've got you for life. <laughs> and so that was it, really. And then I was lucky. I, I did every job within the regiment. Um, and, you know, I got to the stage where I was sort of late twenties and I just wanted to do something different. And my commanding officer at the time said, you should go and in, go into airborne forces. And so I passed the parachute selection course, which was very, very tough and joined the um, parachute squadron Royal Army Corps, which we spent, sadly, most of our time in Northern Ireland, uh, which was very exciting. And it got me into a new, Way of thinking about intelligence and so forth, which then became quite a dominant feature in my subsequent career.
0: Did you always know you were going to stay full time in the in the no, service? No, because
1: I joined as a short service commission officer. Every two and a half years, I would take a rain check on mental rain check on whether I want to do the next two and a half years.
0: Because it's taxing; it's a lot of responsibility. You're away from home as yeah. well. Uh,
1: and I, you know, I missed my sister's wedding and did all and missed all sorts of things really. But it was. Um, I don't know. You just just. It's I, I, it, it's it's not the wearing a badge. It's not ordering people around. It is to this very day the tremendous sense of companionship and comradeship. I mean, I, you, I, every every day. I, I for example, I wrote a, a thing on Facebook the other day um, about uh, the twenty fifth anniversary of the Gulf War um, within within four hours, five hours, I had 60 likes from corporals I'd commanded, you know, t- uh, 30-odd years ago. And so that, that tremendously strong friendship is unique and it's something which... It's very difficult to mirror anywhere else, uh, in, certainly not in civilian life.
0: Yeah. Has it changed your view of life as well?
1: Uh, yes. I mean, you know, I go back... Um, there was I, in the early 1960s, commissioned in the 2nd Royal Tank Regiment, based in in, in, in on the Salisbury Plain. We were then posted to Germany, uh, to the Lüneburg, uh, Heide, Lüneburg Heath, uh, in a place called bergen which m- more noted for Belsen, um, which in those days was pretty bleak. Uh, and we were there, really, to keep the Soviet Union and to preserve West Germany. Uh, and the first winter that I was there, uh, 1964, I was sent up to Berlin uh, as a relief troop whilst the Berlin tank squadron were t- sent away to do leave and courses. And I was in the Bernarschdrasse, where just in the middle of the night, three hours after four young men had jumped out, of the, jumped out of the windows of what was a house on the border, I mean, shot by the Volkspolizei. And then to be there when I was at the Royal College of Defence Studies, 25 years later, with an American friend of mine, standing in Bhanatrasa, I with my foot either side of the border, and um, Bob said to me, you know, this is the most extraordinary thing. It justifies your entire life, because it's a, it's a contrast between that and today, when clearly the Soviet Union and its philosophy had been defeated and was falling to pieces. And if ever you wanted to justify your life's work, it was that.
0: Yeah. Did you ever dread going back to serve in a particular area?
1: Are you Um, ever in control in where you go? No, the, the postings were always there. I had to command a tank squadron. Uh, That was going to be in Germany. It was the only place to do it. The UK was not the place to do it. I commanded a tank regiment, the the second Challenger regiment. I converted it to Challenger, which was the the latest uh, tank. And then making sure that all my soldiers and officers really understood that what we were there for, we had to be totally professional. uh, And the way the army changed over time... Uh, particularly in Germany, and became more and more professional. I think Northern Ireland was a great help to it, but we became very professional. And so when the time came, uh, when I was commanding my armoured brigade in Germany, and it was very clear to me after Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait that we were going to go, we would end up in Kuwait because we were the counterattack brigade. And so that was actually clear. Um, was i Was I scared? Was I frightened? Yes, of course, sitting in the tank on the about to go into Iraq yes, of course uh, the it was the culmination of a life of preparation and development for that very moment, so yeah, was it difficult being away from your children The worst thing I can remember was going uh, the children my, my children were at boarding school in the u k all of them all three of them but um, I think I've never forgotten, as I drove away from my house in Munster on my way to the uh, to Saudi Arabia, <coughs> looking back out of the sta- my staff car, back window of my staff car, and seeing my <coughs> wife and my two daughters standing at the door, wondering if I'd ever see them again. I know it sounds... Uh, f- it's not me trying to be melodramatic, but wondering if I'd ever see them again. And th- that's a, a strange feeling, really, uh, Northern Ireland. I was, I was a bachelor, and uh, there, you know, if I if I'd got shot, that, okay, fine. My parents would have been very upset, but I didn't have dependents, and so there is a contrast between the two. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I know, Brigadier, you brought along a song with you as well. Talk us through, uh, before we go to it, can you tell us what the song means to you and, and the significance of it?
1: Well, it's the, it's the, it is the regimental march of the Royal Tank Regiment, My Boy Willie. Um, the first tank or the first tracked vehicle in the development of the tank was Little Willie. It, it didn't have a gun or anything like that. And it then produced Mother, which was the big one, which had the two tank guns on it. And we, um, we, we, we have this um, this wonderful march, My Boy Willie. It wasn't the tanks that won the war. It's My Boy Willie. Which the point it's making, it isn't the armour that does it. It's the people inside. And that is the that's the central element of it, and it's a very spirited march, and something we're all intensely proud of, and I just you know just love it, and it's uh, it's rather like the colours. There are all sorts of funny things tied up in our history. We're one of the youngest regiments in the army, and there are all sorts of great things. For example, the berry. We uh, we produced the berry. French had it. We produced it uh, into the British Army. Blackberry. And the colours of the Royal Tank Regiment are red, brown, and green. Why they're red, brown, and green? Because General Hugh Ellis, who was the first commander of the Tank Corps in 1917, when they were going to the Battle of Combré, the first big battle that tanks took part in, said he couldn't. He needed a flag to fly, so everyone would know where I am. And so he sent his chief of staff off. Well, the chief staff was sculling around in in, in these French towns, which many of which had been damaged, and the only shop he could come across that had textiles in it was a French ladies' knicker shop. <laughs> and so that's why we had these strange colours. And so as a part of that, uh, through mud... And blood to the green fields beyond is an essential element of that. And that's why you have the the, the red, brown and green in the regimental tie. It also ties in neatly with my boy Willie. So you can play it now.
0: Let's have a listen. Maybe a couple or one of your most memorable postings or one that has really affected you. Well, I I suppose they've all affected you and shaped the person you are now.
1: The one that most that definitely affected me most of all has to be uh, the Gulf War. Uh, I was in Spain with my family and uh, in August uh, when the invasion took place, and my then-wife said to me, Christopher, come in here look at the... thing." And I walked into the, into the sitting room and in the television at the end, and there were these helicopters flying into the telephone towers that are in Kuwait City. And I said to my wife, I will be there next year without fail, and I got on the telephone to my chief of staff in Germany and said to get the commanding officer and start to think about how we would go. Well, the other brigade went first, but I knew in my heart of hearts that we would end up by going. And so the preparation of a brigade which was not cohesive together, um, two of the infantry regiments had never served with us, the tank regiment had not been in tanks, and all our tanks had gone to support the other regiment, the other brigade. And so putting it all together was the biggest challenge. And then working as we worked with the divisional headquarters and trying to define the plan that we were going to operate against when we we went into Kuwait was really very challenging. Um, And, you know, I think... With the preparation and training the whole time, the time was short. We didn't get into the desert until the 4th of January, 1991, 25 years ago. We didn't get into the desert till the 4th of January, and we had to be battle-ready by the 30th of January. Well, that's a very short space of time, added to which uh, we had... A lot of restrictions on the amount of mileage that we could use for training and the amount of ammunition we could use for training and all of this uh, made life really quite difficult and the consequence of that was that the whole time I was very nervous about any plan I devised. Uh, What I didn't want was for me to be the cause of uh, heavy casualties within the brigade. And, you know, the night before the attack, I can remember having a very broken night's sleep, really, really worried about whether or not uh, I would... My plan would be the cause of uh, our own people dying, which is one of the reasons why I was very keen to command forward. I was in a tank and I was commanding right up with the lead elements so that I could see what was happening and make sure that if things changed, I could change it there and then, so yeah, that was that's the most memorable time, and to this day, uh, you know, we laugh about it. But my tank crew, uh, my gunner, who's now a millionaire, and <laughs> oh, my <no. laughs> radio operator, uh, Loda, uh, who drives a big. Um, a a big logistics vehicle across the continent and these days fighting off would-be migrants getting back. And my driver, who is a security director in... But we're all very close, and here we are 25 years later. And that, you know, when when you're in a tank, that, that closeness of four people, there's no rank at all. It's about four people doing what they have to do to keep one another alive. And I think the film Fury... Um, the one thing there are a lot of unreal realities in that. The one thing that comes through really, really, really strongly is the presentation of this closeness of a tank crew and it 's unique, a unique thing nowhere else in the army other than perhaps special Air Service with the special Air Service patrol, which again four men, but that four man to this very day you know we 're close not a day goes past without one of them being in touch with me on facebook
0: that's so, so lovely to hear. Yeah. Let's talk about your journey to
1: Hong Kong. How did
0: you end up in Hong Kong then? Well,
1: uh, after uh, after giving up command of my brigade, um, I received a posting order to... Uh, Hong Kong, the deputy commander of British forces and the chief of staff. To me, this was the kiss of uh, career death. So I, I did not want to come to Hong Kong at all. Did you not? Oh. No, I, my family wanted to come, but <laughs> I didn't want to come. It was the last place I wanted to go. Uh, come why? I, I, largely because you know I, I'm very professional, and uh, I, there were things I wanted to do in in my military career. Though having said that, I, I always had a question mark about whether or not I wanted to continue in the army. Um, anyhow, I arrived out here, flew in on the uh, on the twelfth of June, arriving at Kai tak, um to be greeted by my staff car and treated like a king. This is unusual because it didn't happen in Germany. Let me tell you. Uh, anyway, t- greeted like a king and then swept away to a lovely house in Stanley Fort. And then, when I started to get to grips with the job, I started to understand, in particular, the Chinese uh, servicemen who supported the garrison, and I was the I was their head. I was the brigadier of the Hong Kong Military Service Corps. And when I got to know them, uh, I began to understand the wonderful, yeah, the wonderful attitude of Hong Kong people. Actually, I have to say, and uh, I was at a dinner party um, at the then commander of British forces house, and I overheard. <coughs> um, Stephen Day, who was the Senior British Trade Commissioner, talking about the British Chamber of Commerce and if they could get the money, what they wanted to do with it. And it was in... It really, it was in a pretty bad way. And I went up to him afterwards, my heart beating, and said to him, you know, Stephen, if that job came up, I'd really... I think I'd like to do it. And I heard no more. And then um, John Foley, who was the commander of British forces, as chief staff, uh, he, he was... Even to sort of tell you what was in his tray. and so when he went home uh, in the evening, I would always go and check out his tray, check out his safe. And I came across this letter uh, from the then chairman of, um, of the British Chamber of Commerce saying, "Do you know of any soldiers who might be interested?" And so I rang a friend of mine and said, "How do you write a CV?" I've never <laughs> had to do you it. Never had to do? No, it. not at all. <laughs> of course not. <laughs> People knew you by reputation. No, no, no. Just I'd never had to write a CV, and. Um, uh, in, in the army, you don't have one. You know, you, people post you on the basis of, of your own ability. Anyhow, to cut a long story short, um, I was interviewed and I got the job. It was, it, the, up until the change of sovereignty, it was a struggle. Get, uh, getting the funds and getting it right and defining its role, which was going to change. Uh, and uh, throughout, one always had fantastic support from remarkable people who were chairmen, who were members of the General Management Committee and gradually we managed to persuade the membership as a whole, which was growing and growing and growing because we hired good people and uh, we managed to recruit we managed to persuade the membership as a whole that they needed to have ownership of their chamber. The moment that that happened, and it was was the tipping edge, the whole thing changed and it became the great success I like to think it was when I handed it over last April.
0: Yeah, was it difficult to say goodbye to that job? Because d- uh, At the it? time,
1: I, I, yes, I'll be quite candid. It wasn't something I particularly wanted to do. You know, I, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a Roman Catholic, and I actually do believe, as it happened, given that my wife uh, suddenly had a very rare form of illness uh, and we needed to go to America to get it dealt with, uh, that actually... It was fate, you know, don't fight fate. And so uh, it happened. And, um, you know, in retrospect, it was a change I needed in life, actually. And the consequence of that is that I'm now, uh, I've got senior advisorships, one of which is the European Chamber. I can really contribute to that, so I'm a founder member of it. And also I'm working with... Um, as a senior advisor to the leading risk and uh, corporate advisory uh, in Asia, which I love. Yeah. And the people in it are exactly the same sort of people that I'm used to working with uh, in, um, in, in the British Chamber of Commerce. And I gradually recruited uh, a fantastic team of people and uh, my successor was really lucky to inherit the team I left him with. Uh, they, uh, they, with one exception, they were all female. Uh, <laughs> absolutely great. And, um, uh, you know, I, I, and I had a succession of these really talented people right the way through and great fun to be with and great fun to work with. And that's, a, that's the great thing about life. I think the key to, we only get one... There's only one ticket. There's no return ticket on this uh, that life, uh, and the key thing is to be able to enjoy it. That, that you can work hard, provided you're enjoying it and you're with people that you enjoy being with. If it isn't, it ain't worth paying. Then look around and do something else, is what I'd say. But that, for me, was absolutely fantastic. And I've been fortunate in the my new life. Uh, I've got exactly the same. I've got people that I admire and respect... And it's an area of intellectual interest to me at any rate. And so I don't feel in any way it's a step down, not at all quite the contrary. Yeah. No, I think you're mm.
0: busier than ever as well. Yeah. Well,
1: maybe not busier than ever. Not, not quite. <laughs> I'm able to adjust it a little bit. I go home a little bit earlier, as I used to in the army. <laughs> yeah.
0: Before I let you go, can we talk about your hobbies and what do you do for fun? I, I, I read somewhere you, you are a keen golfer.
1: I am a keen golfer. <laughs> I play... Well, I'm, I'm fortunate... Uh, in that I'm a member of um, uh, Sheko Golf Club, and every Saturday there's a group of uh, led by uh, a wonderful old um, army retiree, but it's called Dad's Army. And um, we play golf to get to lunch, if you understand me. (laughs) And we (laughs) have a leisurely lunch and then retire home to go and sleep And all. I mean, heaven's sakes, you know, I'm now... 73 very nearly and I don't feel it but I try and you know I try and keep myself feeling fit and young but nevertheless it's a it's a lot of fun and these are all uh, the the other members of dad's army are all people from different walks of life the other interests that I have in life very very deeply I've been a a very active member of the hike for hospice Um, unfortunately I've got arthritis in one knee which means I can't go downhill so I don't do the hikes but uh, it's been a very important part of my life and um, I think because uh, my father died of cancer and the helping those who are helping others is an important element it mm. and I think that's absolutely valid. I also run all the ex-service charities in Hong Kong I'm responsible for the annual service of remembrance uh, at the Cenotaph uh, I also um, responsible for the Poppy Appeal here and we help uh, a wide variety and I told you about the wonders of these Chinese ex-servicemen uh, and we've got 14,000 of them we look after and uh, they, when, when the British garrison ceased here unlike most colonial, um, most col- post-colonial um, experiences our ex-servicemen all lost their jobs in most colonial armies they're just incorporated into the new national army that didn't happen here and so... Um, you know, some of these guys fought in the Second World War. We're still looking after Second World War volunt- uh, veterans, and they need help. And so we've been very successful in collecting money, investing it, and raising it to ensure that until the last one dies, in it, we think probably that would be around 2050, 2060, that there's going to be enough money to meet their welfare needs. And so that's a real challenge.
0: Actually. How many of them are there in Hong Kong?
1: Well, in we've got branches in two, uh, Vancouver. We've got uh, a branch in the UK. We reckon, estimate, around 8,000 in Hong Kong.
0: Oh, wow. And then overseas, about 6,000? Yeah.
1: Wow. yeah, yeah. You know, People worry about Hong Kong changing. And uh, with the, uh, the with the dilution of Hong Kong people by the influx of people from the mainland. Yes, that sure is a worry, but the real Hong Kong, is it still there? And this wonderful restaurant, there must have been 200 people in it. Uh, it was Da Pai Dong, people yeah. cooking in front of your face. Uh, it was the Hong Kong that I, when I arrived in June 1992, it was the same as that. And, the uh, and you know, that sort of friendliness and can-do and helpfulness, it's still there. It really is. And silly things like if you can know where to go, silly things like, you know, the switch on one of my lamps broke down. Where do you go find a new switch? You, you, at you Blue just, Street do you know what I'm I mean thinking, yeah, yeah I know well, I, yeah, anywhere you yeah. know, that, that's got some and they may not speak perfect English but they will all speak enough English to, and they're very proud of being able to help you and that when you got it and they say that's fantastic they are really proud and don't lose it Hong Kong please don't lose it